I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. I'm your host, Justin Bua, artist, and I am here with Lizzie Dastin, art historian. Uh, Today, Lizzie is going to lead us into our topic. Sparked by current events that happened this week with the hearing of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and her accusation that Brett Kavanaugh assaulted her when they were both in high school, The week has just been really dark and a lot of trauma has been jostled and people are echoing her courage and her bravery and talking about their own sexual assault that they've had to endure. And then there's been a lot of backlash for that. And so it's been been a tough week and it has really made me think that art can be, more than ever, can be an inroad out of trauma. And so I think it's incredibly important to problematize systems that happen in in life and to criticize those systems when they are physically dangerous, as in the case with Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh, or emotionally toxic, but to also see a way that will give hope to the darkness and illuminate and maybe give us a little bit of a relief. So that's what encouraged this topic for me, art and trauma. Yeah, you know, obviously there's art therapists who deal with this all the time, and I feel like especially when kids are young, uh, they don't have the verbal skills to be articulating their trauma and their pain and suffering, and so uh, I think it's really valuable. Uh, My own trajectory has been, you know, in the trauma that I have experienced um, in my life, I feel like, and just the, you know, whatever it is, loneliness or, or you know, shitty things that happen to you in your life, I, I feel like art has, I always think about art as wellness, and art has definitely healed souls, and I, you know, personally have become an artist because it's been able to fill a certain connection to the universe through art. I feel like as we come out in from the womb, our greatest connection is still uh, not able to be articulated in any way better than drawing. We can't, we don't really have a command of words. We, we don't know how to form, you know, words and concepts. And I think that you're creating incredible concepts with lines and circles and what we like to call uh, icon- iconographic drawing which is the drawing that kids start with as, as little children, they start with drawing iconographically. So they're drawing with uh, circles, spheres, um, rectangles and squares and triangles. And so those symbols, it's, it's also called symbolic drawing. Uh, it's where we, we draw from, from, the, uh, right, from the left side of the brain and not the right side. But we do a lot of symbolic drawing initially and those represent certain things. In other words, a house is a square with a triangle as a roof and a rectangle as a chimney and then a couple of spheres of smoke. But we're able to articulate things uh, as children and I believe that because of that, this is a very weird cosmic stony thing to say. This sounds almost like it's coming from a psychoactive uh, experience, but it's not. But I really believe that the closest communication we have to the outside world, you know, in the uterine kind of world is through drawing because it's the first markations that we 
can articulate ourselves as children. And we're so close to that place of just being developed in a cosmic from the cosmos, you know, from nothing to something that I feel like those markations have important meanings and messages uh, that are really powerful. But that being said, because kids are so young at that age, it's hard to really understand their trauma. And certainly through these drawings, you can see that there is a really deep understanding of that trauma, even if you're only experiencing it from a uh, drawing or painting perspective. Right. So maybe for kids, it comes at a more instinctual level. Mm -hmm. And I think for artists, often it's more conscious or there's more of a direct awareness of the trauma and an explicit use of their art as a way of healing. And there are several stunning artistic examples that I'm thinking of. One would be Tracy Emin, who is a British artist. And in the 90s, she did an installation called My Bed. And this was basically a recreation of her bed when she was in a suicidal depressive place. And there were condom wrappers and cigarettes and alcohol and just everything that together exhibited her self-destruction. And she was unfortunately sexualized at a very early age and she was raped when she was 13. And so this installation really comments on that psycho the psychological reverberances of that early trauma. And she received a lot of praise from U.S. critics because I think that we're a little bit more open to being personal in our art and really vulnerable and maybe even a little bit provocative and addressing themes that are hard. But in England, she did not receive that kind of of accolade. And mm. so I think that that kind of commentary is interesting too. So that is her way or one vehicle through which she addressed her trauma in her art. I think that uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres is another great example. And we talked about him once with that romantic piece called Lovers, where he took a found object of a clock and synced it to the exact same time as the other clock. And that was illustrative of his partnership with Ross, but he addressed the trauma of losing Ross to AIDS in a piece called Untitled, where he put pre-wrapped industrial candy, just super cheap commercial stuff, and he piled it in a corner, and the weight of that candy pile equals the weight that Ross was when he died, so about 175 pounds. And viewers are encouraged to take a piece of candy as they walk through the gallery. And so it almost becomes this participatory exchange that's fun. And so you don't realize just by on the surface of it that you're actually including yourself and engaging in this deep trauma of the artist. And the poignancy is that every day the candy stack diminishes and that is a metaphor for the breakdown of the body upon death. But in the morning it's stacked up again and it weighs 175 pounds again and it regenerates and unfortunately Ross does not. So I think that was another way of using art as a an expression or a processing of trauma. Yeah, there's actually a great museum that I used to go to all the time called, uh, I think it's Musée du Brut. It's the Collection de l'Art Brut, B-R-U-T. And it's art 
Do you know about that museum? I do, just okay. a little bit. So uh, I, I lived in a very small village uh, in Switzerland when I was studying abroad. It was called La Tour de Paix. It was between Montreux and Vevey. And right next to uh, my town was a bigger town uh, called Lausanne. And Lausanne is a French town. And they had a collection de d'abru, which is basically a collection of artists uh, who were hospitalized for being mentally insane. And so their art is all over the walls. Uh, and it's, in my opinion, a very impressive collection. Uh, obviously, art helped these people cope. Uh, some of them were, were actually, you know, it was crazy and abstract and wild and weird and wonderful. Others are seem like just insane hobbyists. Like they're able to do repetitive lines over and over and over. It's like a number nine song by the Beatles. Number nine, <laughs> number nine, number nine. I get that musical reference. Yes. So, uh, like, so for me, it was a. It, it, it's very interesting because you have a lot of people who are clearly, you know, mentally insane, and you know, they're able to channel their energy into drawing and painting and to do something creative and to do something that, you know, that is just deeper, that, you know, that is expressing their trauma in the deepest way and hopefully is healing them. You know, I think it, I think as drawing as healing, I feel like it's a very intense connection to God, you know, from a spiritual perspective and I think that that's why people who are mentally insane are able to find peace in drawing because drawing is a meditation. And so, of course, drawing is great for trauma. And you're not just getting messages from the artist, from the, the person who's drawing or painting. You're, you're getting, you're also, during that process, it's a very meditative process. And how much do we all need to slow it down? How much do we all need to dial it back? How much do we all need to get into the cognitive resources of our right hemisphere. We all do. We do. Because that's a place where we're not experiencing time. That's a place where uh, we're able to see spatial relations in a different way, in a, in a matrix way. And so I feel like it's great for trauma. It's great for healing. It's great for meditation, spirituality, meditation. If you do believe in God, you don't believe in God, it certainly brings you to the idea of God because you're drawing and that's coming from a place. When you draw, I often like to think that you're, you're drawing from a different place. It's almost like you're not doing it, but like the hand of the, the unknown is, you know, the hand of God. Right, almost like you're a conduit for something larger. You have to be. When you look at these great paintings, you, you got to be like, that's not possible. You, saw, you ever had that moment where you look at a painting? Like, I always feel that when I walk. When I watch, uh, when I see the Raft of Medusa by Jericot, or I look at the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, yeah, a human being did that. Like you look at Donatello sculptures or Verrocchio or Michelangelo or Rodin, you're like, a human being did like what? That is not. That is the hand of God. So in an, in a way, we, you know, whether you don't believe in God or not, I'm not talking about. This is not in a <laughs> literal religious context. I'm saying this is a like to have those moments is just blessed. So drawing is just a blessed act of healing and wellness. I agree with that. And I love your connection between the experience of drawing or the process of art creation with some kind of moving meditation 
And that is actually reminding me of Maya Lin's Vietnam War Memorial, which again really relates to the trauma of the Vietnam War and the pain of all of those losses, but also in a meditative and participatory way. So it was kind of a controversial choice to select Lynn for the project. She was an architecture student at Yale, and typically public monuments and memorials were done by sculptors, and they would be figurative. So you would see a general or some body of a soldier, and it was a lot more pointed as that person is a hero and we should thank them for the martyred act of sacrificing themselves for a larger cause. And the Vietnam War was a lot more controversial as a war and especially the U.S. involvement in it. And I think that Lynn's approach echoes that in such a thoughtful, sensitive way. So she eliminated any figurative representations. Hers is more of an etching into the ground rather than a buildup of a sculpture. And she selected black granite and carved the names of all of the the people who sacrificed themselves, who were lost at, uh, who died in Vietnam. And rather than do it alphabetically, she did it based on the chronology of when they died. And I think that is a really smart choice because now it doesn't read like a phone book. And it's a lot more about the process. And her choice of black was interesting too, because as a viewer, you see your own reflection in that. And so even if you weren't a part of the Vietnam experience, I wasn't born when the Vietnam War happened, but going and experiencing that space, I feel like I am somehow intimately involved. And so I think that that is her way of expressing this meditation and her way of encouraging viewers to really ask those questions. Did we need to involve ourselves in this war? Did this war have to happen? And just really think about that and engage intellectually rather than just see a sculpture of a general and think, yes, that's my hero. Yeah. I mean, that's a very interesting point. That's a really good, you know, that's a really good analysis of that. I, I feel like, uh, you know, we talk about artist trauma, like artist healing trauma, you know, and once again, you know, when I was, I was a single latchkey kid, you know, I, in New York City, and I didn't, that was a time of my life where there was a lot of craziness and chaos, and, and I definitely lost myself in drawing and painting. And I think a lot of artists are really healing themselves or channeling their energies into places on the paper that allows them to free themselves from the shackles of the reality because it's a great way to escape and it's a deeper way um you could obviously do it through all art through music and writing poetry but i feel like there's nothing like almost creating a a spiritual um world on paper you know and then you look at these artists like uh, you know, directors like Tim Burton or just real creatives. Lane Smith is a, did James and the Giant Peach. But these worlds that are like fantastical worlds, obviously Dr. Seuss, you know, you, you can go on. Maurice Sendak, these children's book illustrators too. And you listen to Maurice Sendak's life. He had a lot of trauma. Like that, it, Maurice Sendak is a, we should do an episode on Maurice Sendak. I'm oh, sorry I love to, Sendak. Me too. He did Where the Wild Things Are that uh, Spike Jones later directed and fucked up. No offense, but. Or what about Dodgson, who was the author of Alice in Wonderland? He was a photographer, and he had a really troubled life. Lewis Carroll? 
Yeah, right. But his okay. his actual name was I I can't remember his first name, but his surname was Dodgson. Okay, you're saying that that Lewis Carroll was a pseudonym. Yeah. Okay, so what'd you say about him? That he also experienced a really tumultuous life and right. used art both in the literary format but also photographically as a way of processing. See, and that's an interesting thing because these 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 are worlds that artists like uh, Lewis Carroll and Maurice Sendak and Lane Smith and uh, Terry Gilliam, the director who directed Brazil and all these crazy time bandits and all these crazy worlds. I feel like these guys who create the world, like Spirited Away. Who did Spirited Away? Again, the director? Uh, Hamiyazaki. Hamiyazaki. Right, my daughter said Thank Hamiyazaki. Thank you, Akira. Yeah, so like these worlds that are created are so fantastic. You almost feel like their childhood had to be fucking crazy and fucked up to create these universes that they could walk into. It's like a black hole traveling into another dimension that is done out of necessity. And yet we're experiencing it years later from an objective point of view saying, wow, this is really cool art. This is so creative. But no, this came out of pain and suffering. This came out of the way that they healed from the trauma that we are now enjoying as entertainment. That's interesting. That is interesting, and that's also an increased way of seeing the healing, that it isn't just on a local level for the artist, for the author, for the creator, but it's a way to include the viewer and the reader in that exchange, too. So I think that the participatory nature of all of this healing is probably the most integral part. I feel like uh, we don't even, like, I don't know, We, we, we have no choice as artists. You know what I mean? Like some artists just need to draw and paint because they're in so much pain. Whether it's literal trauma, you know, getting beaten up or, you know, being left alone or abandoned or, you know, abused or psychological or otherwise. I feel like artists rarely have good childhoods. You know, if I think about my friends who are in the artist world and the people's stories that I know, rarely. I'm not saying it's not possible. Of course it is. You know, it's like fighters. Like back in the days, I remember fighters like in MMA, You, their whole story was pretty messed up. Now you're getting people who are pretty well adjusted getting into fighting. You know, I think with art, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's true, but but I, I feel like it's got to be, you know, certainly was with, with me and, and a lot of my contemporaries that I'm aware of. And maybe those are extreme examples, but I think that everybody can still I'm relate. An extre- I'm an extreme person. You are. So <laughs> I've noticed. This is, this is, everything's extreme. <laughs> but you don't Take need a- to come from that kind of background. You can come from Absolutely. a very privileged background Absolutely. and still. So we all have this human aspect to us, this right. relational trauma. And so I think listening to a an impassioned speech by Blasey Ford, for instance, even though I have not personally experienced anything like that. It still was a very upsetting, vulnerable thing for me. And I think for a lot of people, men and women, because we can we can translate that into yeah. our own lives and our own experiences. So I really, I commend the bravery of people like her and also artists who are processing the same kind of thing in in their own format. And I would just be remiss to say, if we didn't go back to World War II, and I know that we talked about the relationship between Nazis and the avant-garde and how we talked about art being this vehicle of escapism Mm -hmm. and also reclaiming identity for prisoners who were 
in Auschwitz and Dachau and places like that. But we have not talked about the effect of World War II on the art scene. And there's an artist named Fontana, and he thought, how can I go back to representation when the entire world has changed? Art is completely and irrevocably changed too. So instead of painting something, he would take pics and stab at his canvases. And so it became this violent void as opposed to anything built up on its surface. And I kind of see the difference between painting on top of a gessoed canvas and stabbing through it is sort of similar to that Maya Lin. She's carving in the earth on the earth as opposed to creating this sculpture that stands on top of it. So there is this dialogue really of going inward. And there's another artist named Fautrier who was stationed maybe in an institution actually, or some kind of medical space. And he overheard the execution of thousands of Jews and he couldn't see it. So he only had that auditory uh, memory of it, but he would paint based on the experience of that traumatic sound. And so his works, they look like these flayed bodies, skin, the impasto is really thick. And so World War II, the after effects of that, that was really felt in the art world. The most trauma Lizzie's had is when I put down the work of Jackson Pollock. That's, that's <laughs> oh my God, I wish that was the worst <laughs> thing I've experienced. Although that was bad. Yes, that was bad. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, you, you, you see, you're speaking of World War II, you know, World War One. I'm going to talk about, hey, since you're talking about uh, Nazi Germany, I'm going to talk about a socialist painter that we all should know that I talk about a lot. And I'm going to talk about her actually every second. You know what I mean? <laughs> Kate Kollwitz. Yeah, Kate Kollwitz. <laughs> K-A-T-H-E. Umlaut. Umlaut. Uh, Kollwitz. K-O-L-L-W-I-T-Z. And Katie Kollwitz was an artist who was uh, very affected by trauma. Her son died. Uh, in the war, um, I think her, I believe her other son died as well, and she did a lot of like Mutter mit Kind, mother with child, Mutter mit, you know, uh, death taking the child away from the mother's hands, ripping it, literally ripping it, with his bony phalanges out of the mother's hands, uh, and into the into the dark world, into the not good night, uh, as Dylan Thomas would say, into that good night, but not good night uh, for Colwitz, and she was able to express herself very intensely in. Uh, on limestone with etchings, uh, not not just etchings, rather uh, all kinds of stuff, woodcuts and etchings and uh, lithographs and serographs. And she was very brilliant draftsperson and was able to uh, articulate her trauma on paper in a very dark way, uh, much like Sue Ko does today with her, you know her own personal healing of her of the trauma because she's talking about all of obviously the factory farming and then the animal the animal slavery very heavy duty stuff uh so that's another thing it's almost feels like sometimes these artists take on these bigger projects right where they're healing the animals or they're healing the people or they're healing the children and somehow energetically suko is putting out that message of like i'm healing the world, or I'm trying to heal the animals to give them a little, yeah, of course, you're, you're giving a voice to them, you're showing the atrocities and the holocaust of factory farming, but I think what what she's also do is by doing that, she's trying to send out an energetic like vibration of positive energy, even though it's such a dark interpretation 
uh, of that reality, of the miserable reality of, of animal lives. And I feel like the same thing with, with Katie Colwitz is like she's cathartically doing it for herself. It's such a dark image, but there's like a moment of healing when you're able to have that experience, right? When you do a drawing, it's like, ah, it feels like here I am healing again. I think Katie Colwitz, Suko are really good examples of artists who can do that. I think so too. And I really believe that the thesis of our conversation today is that communication can get us through, through the trauma that we've experienced as individuals, through the collective trauma that we experience as a nation. And that communication can be auditory, it can be literary, it can be artistic. And we just encourage that whatever vehicle you have, that you express it. Yeah, and I would even take that a step further and say that I believe it is the most powerful vehicle of communication as a child. Because it's the most deep, deeply connected to the spirit and the soul and the most tools to articulate, you know, at that age. So that would be trying to take it to another level of under understanding. Uh, art is powerful. You know, and that's why I think that this this podcast uh, is really powerful. So take a listen, share with your friends. We're not messing around here. This is real. Peace. <laughs>